I'm Kieran, I'm the pastor here, and uh, I am giving a one-off message today uh, called Looking for a Leader, because for the last two years, if you haven't been with us, we've been uh, looking for a leader at uh, St. Philip's, and uh, what is it now? Uh, 18 days ago, I was commissioned here as the priest in charge, and so a bit strange to be talking about looking for a leader when, you know, that kind of chapter is over, but uh, also today it's our annual meeting. Uh, and so it's good for us to reflect uh, as we come to the annual meeting on uh, where, where we've been and also where we're going. And so that's why we're looking at this topic of, of looking for a leader. And, and I need to kind of set up the story of, of 1 Samuel 7 a little bit because uh, some of the main things that have happened in the story so far is that God has raised up a leader for the people of Israel uh, called Samuel. And he's raised him up from the barren womb of Hannah. Uh, we see the picture of uh, this uh, poor and destitute woman, weep woman, weeping and crying out to God in the temple. Uh, and out of her, God has raised up a leader for his people, uh, Samuel. But uh, that's not the only thing he's done in the story so far. Uh, there have been corrupt leaders in Israel, a guy called Eli and his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. And God, uh, in his kindness to the people of Israel, has also been able to uh, bring those corrupt leaders down and to uh, take them out at the same time as raising up Samuel. And so uh, when uh, Hannah gave birth to Samuel, she sang this wonderful song that sums up the whole message of 1 Samuel. And, and in verse 8 of chapter 2, she says, The Lord raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the trash heap. And then in verse 10, she says, Those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. He will thunder in heaven against them. In other words, Hannah's saying, God is king. Put him at the center, put him in charge, and he'll take care of the rest. Uh, and, and the whole story of Samuel is this kind of tussle as to whether the Israelites can actually get this and, and, and understand and, and put God in charge and listen to him and allow him to lead. Uh, and so, the reason I want to reflect on this as, as I've been coming to today in the annual meeting is because I think um, a temptation for us um, with a new kind of a new minister, a new pastor uh, running the show is that we can sort of in our hearts say, okay, thanks God, we'll take it from here. Uh, we, we needed your help uh, in finding a minister, but, but we've got one now. So uh, thanks, see you later, we'll, we'll take it from here. Uh, and, and actually that's the kind of um, tragedy of what happens in, in this story, actually. It's what the Israelites do. Because th- there's always a temptation for us to, to take matters into our own hands and, and try and solve things on our own. Uh, in fact, um, chapter 7, which is the story that we're looking at this morning, is kind of a rerun of what the Israelites went through in chapter 4. It's kind of like their second chance or, or their test to see if... Um, Everything that they got wrong in chapter 4, they've, they've learned from and are able to apply in this new test in chapter 7. Because in chapter 4, um, the Israelites get under attack by the Philistines uh, again, uh, or for the first time. And instead of um, asking God what he wants to do about the problem, what they do is that they, they take this um, the ark of God, which was like symbolic of God's presence, and, and they kind of use, use it like a lucky charm or, or a genie in a bottle. And they go, oh, well, in, instead of like asking God, they're like, well, no, we've got God in a box. Let's just take, take him 
and and take him to, out into battle against the Philistines, and then and then he'll have to show up. I mean, he can't, uh, you know, let the ark be gone. And God's like, yeah, right. I, I'm not having any of that. And that's exactly actually what happens. Like God's like, no, no, no. I'm not a I'm not in a box. I, I, I'm not a genie in a bottle. I, I'm not a lucky charm. And so he allows the ark of the covenant to be taken away from the, the Israelites, and he allows the Philistines to conquer the Israelites. That's what happened in chapter 4. And so there are these kind of parallels or reruns between chapter 4 and chapter 7. But one of the big themes of, of this whole story is that God wants his people to listen to their leader. And, of course, their leader is God. And, and the reason he wants his people to listen to him is that so that he can lead them and, and lead them in his ways and guide them in his paths. Uh, and so, for example, back in chapter 4, I want to do this compare and contrast. They, they have a military problem, which is what do we do about the Philistines attacking us? And that's the question that they're asking. But then in chapter 7, they have a spiritual problem and, and you see that in verse 2 of chapter 7, if you have a look at it. Um, it. It says, From that day on, the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time past, some 20 years. So this ark has been gone. And then it says, And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. They lamented after, they have a spiritual problem. They're longing for the presence of God. Just like the psalmist uh, last week, if you were here, Psalm 42, as the deer pants for flow, um, flowing streams, so my soul longs for God. They're longing and lamenting for the presence of God. And back in chapter 4, um, to deal with their problems, they, they actually had a secular consultation where they got... Um, kind of the army chiefs and the secular leaders, and they're like, okay, the Philistines are attacking us. What are we going to do? How are we going to deal with this in chapter 4? But they don't do that in chapter 7. They've learned their lesson. Instead of having a secular consultation, they ask their spiritual leader, Samuel. Uh, Samuel, what do we do? How do we? So they're turning back to God and relying on God to face their problems. Um, back in chapter 4, they... They tried to manipulate God. Instead of asking God what he wanted them to do, they were just like, no, God, here's what you're going to do. And that didn't work out so well for them. But now in chapter 7, they, they actually fast and pray. Did you notice that in verse 6? That they were fasting and, and praying. They're coming to God empty and weak and, and asking for his help. Um, so... Really, God has been so gracious to us. Over this kind of time, it was 20 years for them to, um, to discipline them, to train them, and to teach them in how to listen to him, how to depend on him, and how to rely on him as the leader of their lives. And then chapter 7 is this test of whether they've learnt the lesson. And so um, what, what I want you to see as we go through this story, and I hope you'll have chapter 7 in front of you, is, is firstly the preparation for God's mercy in the first section, verses 2 to 6, and then the experience of God's mercy in verses 7 to 10, and then finally there's the memory of God's mercy, and that's where your little stone uh, comes in, and I'll explain what to do with that a little bit later on. So firstly, the preparation for God's mercy. Have a look at verse 2 where they're longing for God. The ark is gone and it says, All the house of Israel lamented 
after the Lord. They want him back. They want to have a relationship with him again. And then in verse 3, Samuel tells them what they need to do. He, he, he tells them that they need to repent. They need to turn their lives around. And the first thing I want you to notice about repentance here is that repentance is relational. Have a look at verse 2. They lamented after the Lord that they wanted a relationship with God again. And again, in verse 3a, Samuel says, if you are returning to the Lord, it's about relationship with him. And then again, direct your heart, in verse 3, he says, to the Lord. Repentance is, is relational. It's about restored relationship with God. But also, have a look at this. That repentance is practical. Look at verse 3. He says, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away, this is what you need to do, put away the foreign gods and the Astartes from among you. Uh, They were worshipping foreign gods. And it's interesting, as I've reflected on this, that really the gods haven't changed. Back then, they were sex, money and power. And today, they're still the same. Sex, money, and power that people sacrifice their lives to gain. Here's what I love what Dale Ralph Davis, a commentator, says about the Israelites giving up these gods. He, he says, Samuel is calling Israel to renounce both the male and female deities of the prevailing fertility worship. So you've got to understand this was an agricultural society and they wanted to get their crops, otherwise they wouldn't be able to eat for the next season. And, and they believed that the fertility gods, there was um, Baal and Astartes, who were male and female, um, were able to give them fertile crops. So uh, Dale Ralph Davis says, Canaanite religion exerted a powerful appeal with the sexual rites that were part of its worship. Most fun-loving Canaanites doubtlessly found the combination of liturgy and orgy highly congenial. This is how they did it, friends. Not to speak of the convenience of having chapel and brothel at one location. This is how they did it, folks. It was no easy task to peel Israelites out of the grip of worship that both asked for and approved of the offering of their glands as a living sacrifice to uh, Baal and Asherah, which was their reasonable service if they wanted their crops to grow. You can see the appeal that this kind of idolatry had to them, this sexual appeal. That's why I say the idols haven't changed. We see the same uh, thing people bowing down to today. But it's so clear from this passage that uh, repentance is practical. God says you need to put your idols Away. It's not enough to feel sad about your sin without changing anything. And so they need to put their idols away. John Calvin said that the human heart is an idol factory. We, we keep on coming up with new, new ways to worship, new things to rely on. And there are lots of ways to, to kind of diagnose the things that you trust in, the, the idols that you may be tempted to worship. So so the first test is, is the time, talent, and treasure test. In other words, how do you spend your time and your talent and your treasure? Then there's the daydream test. Um, where do your thoughts naturally go when you've just got time to think 
and reflect, to, to, to plan. What do you think about? What do you plan for? Where do your hopes naturally go? Uh, that's the daydream test. The, th- the things that you love, the things that really occupy your heart and your mind. And then there's, then there's the nightmare test, which is kind of the, the other side of the coin. What, what makes you feel out of control, anger or anxiety? What makes you feel sort of over-the-top emotions? Because normally uh, these kind of emotions are a sign that whatever you're relying on, whatever your idol is that you need and have to have is kind of under some kind of threat. So those are three tests, the, the time, talent, treasure test, the daydream test, and the nightmare test. Because sometimes we say we love Jesus, but when it comes to how we spend our time, it turns out that we sacrifice all of our time with the Lord on our whatever, X, Y, and Z. Or we say that we love the Lord Jesus, but when it comes to our treasure, our finances, we actually prefer to spend it all on X or Y and Z instead of on building the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Jesus that we say we love. And so uh, what can happen sometimes is that we we keep asking um, God to bow down to our idols instead of making our idols bow down to our God. Uh, So Samuel says to the people who are worshipping gods, if you're returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the idols from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. And this isn't easy. That's why Jesus said whoever wants to come after me must deny himself or herself, take up his cross and follow me. The, the Apostle Paul in Romans 8, he says, put to death, by the power of the Spirit, put to death the sins of the flesh. So, so he's saying that our idols need to die a, a bloody and painful death so that we can serve God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength. And so this is the preparation for God's mercy, this, this sorrow, this longing after God and then this repentance in verses 2 and 6. But then, if you look at verses 7 to 10, then comes the experience of God's mercy. And because after they repent, they're all, they're all gathered at Mizpah, and they're going through this kind of ceremony with uh, Samuel, and the Philistines hear about it, and they're like, sweet. They're all in one place at one time. We can attack and take them all out with one fell swoop. They hear about it, And they're afraid. And so they say to Samuel in verse 8, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord for us and pray that he may save us. Then in verse 9 it says, Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel and the Lord answered him. Here you get a picture of a praying leader. Not because Samuel is strong, but because Samuel is weak. You know, people say, I'm not a strong Christian. I, I don't pray that much. No, that means you are strong because praying is for weak people. Praying is not for strong people. Strong people can do it on their own. Strong people don't need to pray. It's weak people who need to pray. Brothers and sisters, the reason why I pray, please hear me clearly, is not because I'm strong. On the contrary, 
It's because I'm weak. That's the whole point of prayer. So if you've got it into your head that praying is for strong people, you've got it completely inside out and upside down. The reason you don't pray more is either because deep down you know and think that you can do it on your own or you know that you can't do it on your own but you just don't realise that God is there to help. As it says in James 4, you have not because you ask not. Please get this picture of Samuel, the leader, and the people of God utterly helpless with the Philistine army bearing down upon them. And why do they cry out? Is it because they're strong and they have a strong faith and they're conquering on their own? On the contrary, they're about to get destroyed. And so they say to Samuel, do not cease to cry out to the Lord for us and pray that he may save us. And this is the hinge point of the whole story. It's the center point and it's the hinge. Verse 9, have a look. Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel. Then what? And the Lord answered him. Friends, this is the turning point of the whole story. From this point on, we see how this changed the whole trajectory of the story because of Samuel's prayer and not because of Samuel's prayer, but because the Lord answered him. And the rest of the story tells us all the ways in which God answered his prayer. So firstly, in verse 10, as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, by the way, that the sacrifice was about, um, uh, if you like, healing the uplink with God. Because sin separates us from God. And so the point of the sacrifice on the altar was that God, uh, that that's God, our sins would be laid on the sacrifice so that the connection with God can be opened up again. He offers a burnt offering. The Philistines drew near to attack Israel, but the Lord thundered with a mighty voice that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion and they were routed before Israel. The Lord thundered with a mighty voice. That's exactly what Hannah said in her song back in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 10. The weak, marginalised Hannah. She said, the Lord, his adversaries will be shattered. The Most High will thunder in heaven. Isn't that amazing? That prophetic insight that Hannah got in the temple, that she knew that the Lord would thunder against God's enemies And then now these armies and these strong men who are gathered, who are finally learning what Hannah learned in the temple, that when the Philistines come and God's enemies come against him, he thunders against them from heaven. He doesn't use armies. He doesn't use their strength. He just does it himself because God is king. God is their leader. And so through the sacrifice that Samuel makes and the cries that he makes to God, They're saved. They experience God's mercy. And so that leads to the memory of God's mercy because they're like, oh my goodness, did you just see what happened? All we were doing was praying. All we were doing, all Samuel did was make a sacrifice. And look what happened to the Philistine army. We didn't lift a finger. It was all God. And so they're like, we've got to remember this. We've got to set up a stone of remembrance so that we remember that God is our king. God is our leader. God is our provider. And so they set up this stone of remembrance called the Ebenezer, which means thus far the Lord has helped us. It's him who's got us thus far by his grace and by his mercy. 
And of course, the Ebenezer of the Old Testament, that, that rock, that stone of remembrance, is ultimately a pointer to the cross, where God saved us. We didn't lift a finger to save ourselves. And that's our Ebenezer. That's our reminder that it's by his grace where he laid on Jesus instead of a burnt offering all of the punishment for our sins in our place. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And God thundered this time against his son on the cross, standing in our place so that we could be free from our enemies and so that we could enjoy peace on every side, just like the Israelites enjoyed peace from their enemies. Now we have peace with God because of his love and his forgiveness. And of course, the other remembrance points to the cross as well, and that's as we gather around the Lord's table and we remember what God has done for us by grace through faith. And so they set up this Ebenezer, this remembrance. And so the ultimate Ebenezer is the cross and the Lord's Supper. And yet it is good for us on special occasions, on anniversaries, on the days of an annual meeting like today, for us to reflect on the small ways in which he's helped us. And so the reason you've got one of these is to reflect on the last 12 months, whether it's in the life of the church or in your own life, the life of your family, and Try to think of one way in which the Lord has helped you so that you can say to him, thus far, the Lord has helped us. I don't know if you can see it, but uh, down here there's a jar. The 730 have already put rocks, uh, their stones in. Uh, And as you come up for communion, you're invited to bring this, to put it in the jar, and then to remember at the Lord's table as we take the Lord's Supper that thus far, the Lord has helped us. So that's what uh, this uh, is for. Now, I just want to say one last thing about this story because there's a bitter irony in this story. Because right after they've set up this stone of remembrance to say, God is king, God will lead us, God will protect us in chapter 7, guess what happens in chapter 8? They say, We want a king like the other nations. Talk about memory loss. Chapter 7. Let's make sure we remember that God is the king. God can take care of us on his own. God will lead us. God will look after us. Let's make sure we remember that. Chapter 8, we don't want God as king. We want a king like the other nations. What a bitter irony that is to forget that God is our king. And so that is a warning for us that we don't take matters into our own hands, that we keep coming back to him as the leader, the CEO, the head of the church. You know, that's why uh, Paul Miller, he encourages pastors like myself to actually speak to the Lord and offer their resignation as a third person of the Trinity to stop trying to play the role of the Holy Spirit. You know, I heard Rick Warren, uh, who's a a recently retired pastor, every Sunday on his way to church, um, I don't recommend this, he would, he would, for a moment, he would take his hands off the steering wheel as he drove to church as a way of saying, God, this isn't, I'm not in control here. This is not my church. This is, and actually, every Sunday, he would offer his resignation to God. He would say, God, if you don't want me here, I don't want to be here either. You call me away when you're ready. And he, for a split second, he'd take his hands off the steering wheel as a, as a way of saying, God, it's not mine. It's 
yours. And so I've put this in that, um, my annual report, but I want to pray a prayer to the Lord to you today uh, as a newly appointed priest in charge on the day of our annual meeting, offering the Lord my resignation from presuming to be the Holy Spirit or presuming to be the one who leads this church. Here it goes. Dear Lord, I officially resign from my role as the third person of the Trinity. I submit my resignation as the spiritual head of St. Philip's. I want Christ by his spirit to be the spiritual leader of this congregation. I don't want to be the center. I want Christ to be the real functional spiritual head of St. Philip's. Lord, I repent of any desire to be prominent or in control of his body. I realize that he's entrusted me to teach and guard the flock, but it's your flock, Lord. I'm merely your under-shepherd. I commit myself to being a praying pastor, even like Samuel, who desires to lead a praying church. In Jesus' name, amen. So when communion comes, you're invited to put your Ebenezer into the jar. Amen.